You're listening to the Punisher Waterfowls, the Union 0430 podcast. Brought to you by Real Geese Decoys, the most technological advanced silhouette decoys on the market, and Vortex Canada, the force of optics. What's going on, everybody? Uh, welcome to episode 104 of the Union 0430 podcast. Um, we're joined today by Logan Williamson. You guys remember him from the last First Light podcast that we did. And we've got Sean Weaver from Ducklore. Uh, today, it's Mark and I. Um, I got to start off by saying you're probably expecting Damien, but unfortunately, he his father passed away suddenly. Um so our thoughts and, and prayers are going out to him and the family. Yeah, it's anyhow. So today we've got Sean Weaver. Um, you might recognize him from Duck Lore. It's probably my favorite YouTube other than the Punisher podcast, I got to say. Um, and that just, it stems from just the fact that it's honest representation of hunting. Like you don't, you're not seeing Sean every single episode shooting limits and you're not seeing them doing any of this crazy stuff so i really enjoy the show sean tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from first off thanks for the compliment um it's hard to show killing limits every hunt if you don't kill limits every hunt so (laughs) just being honest about my abilities right um that's fine that's fine though like some guys they would still like they just wouldn't show an episode right like you guys have yeah, probably had totally. that in production for so long, but I'm sure that you could have made it look like you had a limit, you know? So yeah. props to you guys for doing that and showing the actual true sides of hunting there, you know? So, well, not to get too far, we can talk about that more later, but I think that's something that was missing from waterfowl content for a long time is just what every, every day Joe's go through. Right. So that was my goal with the show, but as far as uh, where I'm from, uh, grew up in Iowa, which is like the worst place in the world to be a duck hunter. Maybe not quite as bad as like Rhode Island or Hawaii, but pretty rough, you know. And uh, anyway, grew up there, had to work real hard to kill birds, and then got wise when I turned 18 and moved to South Dakota. Sean, how old were you when you started waterfowl? I don't know if I've ever asked you this question. Uh, first time I ever tried to go waterfowling, I was nine years old. And my dad had my, my, my dad and grandpa and uncle were out in a slough, um, duck hunting and they had left me in the car. Uh, I was sleeping in the car to be fair. (laughs) And I decided to try to walk out to them. Well, they're like 300 yards out into this slough and mud flats, like, you know, hundred yards of mud flats. I get out into the mud wearing like, you know, little kid rubber boots and instantly over the boots stuck, start having to holler for my dad to come get me out. They got to come like pull me out of the, (laughs) out of the mud. So that was my first attempt at waterfowl hunting, uh, but killed my first duck actually when I was 12. Now that, that would have made a good show. I would, I would, that would have gotten great reviews on YouTube. It's, it's really too bad that iPhones weren't a thing then because that would be some real gold to have nowadays, like throw in a, throw in a duck lore episode of 
Sean buried up to his knees in mud, hollering for his daddy. <laughs> and that's why the old guys are so good at telling stories because they had to be descriptive and they had to exaggerate, right? So I'm sure, I'm sure your dad and them yep. made some pretty, had some pretty colorful stories for that day. <laughs> oh, they still tell stories about that. You know, oh, he's a duck, he's a big duck hunter now, but you should have seen the one time. <laughs> and and that's just it. Like when when you talk about like, oh, it'd be great to have iPhones back then. Man, I don't want half the shit I was doing on an iPhone, like videos. Like you see some of the stuff coming out now, like, whoa, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, no, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Yeah, but yeah, I just think I would be scared of uh, more than anything, how I hunted back then. Like pretty, I mean, this, this is a whole nother story, but freshman year of college, or sophomore year of college, we got a Pontiac Grand Prix stuck two miles down a mud road. And didn't we, you know, we were poor, like poor, poor, had $37 between the five of us in that car collectively. And <laughs> we, uh, we didn't want to ruin our hunting clothes. And we had shot five limits of ducks. So stuffed all in the windows of this Grand Prix is ducks like limits of ducks. And then we took all of our clothes off to push this car in the mud because we didn't want to ruin the only hunting clothes we had. So we're all stripped down to our boxers. It's 45 degrees outside. Camo waders and ducks shoved all in this Pontiac Grand Prix. And we pushed that car for almost two miles. Couldn't get it up the last hill and ended up having to call a farmer to tow us out anyway. I thought you were going to yeah. say that the cops showed up and just saw five college age guys in their boxers pushing a car full of ducks. <laughs> I gave the very, I gave the very, very, very PG short version of that, but there were some expletives thrown around about first response from first responders, from sheriff department and from the farmer. And let me tell you that farmer, my buddy Brady was wearing pink American Eagle boxers and he was sure there was some funny business going on that wasn't. <laughs> duck hunting he 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 didn't want it he did not want to he did not want to give us a tow he like was he was adamant that he was not going to and the sheriff department finally convinced him to bless these his damn kids yeah oh yeah and yeah yes yeah. oh man we did some stupid stuff so how fun, did it though. oh yeah fun back in the day and now you can't do anything without being caught on the cell phone right so yeah there you go so There's how did it... probably a video floating around from that hunt somewhere because there was cell phones. Oh. <laughs> so how did it evolve from you being a boy with your boots stuck in the mud to you getting on and doing this duck lore? Man, um, you know, so once I, when I was like 13 or so, went on a, like, it just an unbelievable migration day mallard hunt with my buddy jace his it was a family friend of his took us and you know we're two kids 13 and 14 years old and hunting with a guy that actually knows what he's doing and uh killed three limbs of green heads thinking back on it he probably did most of the shooting there um <laughs> and I just got absolutely ate up with it. I mean, all through high school after that, you know, 
every waking moment was how we were going to go duck hunting in the summertime we were building boat blinds on boats and stuff i mean everything was duck hunting and uh when you know when i went to college at south dakota state in brookings um it's because it's duck town like that was one of the huge reasons i wanted to go there and uh just got kind of man almost fell into it but also wasn't afraid to talk to people i didn't know and make friends uh there's a guy who kind of depends on who like people in the waterfowl space tend to really know who he is people that aren't like in the industry i guess if you wanted to call it don't really know him but his name is ben fuyan and he's a hunting guide uh worked at habitat flats for a long time he's one of the most duck killing sobs i know great dude and uh i i straight up you know introduced myself to him asked him if he knew anyone looking for a hunting guide just a decoy setter scout whoever you know i just wanted to get my feet wet in guiding and he got me a job guiding and from there the rest is history everything after that with the exception of maybe two bad decisions that weren't based on ducks every other decision has been based on ducks so yeah yeah i got into i got into production in college while i was guiding and and started making videos and and was really doing it as a way to book hunting clients um you know it was just a means to an end but i liked doing it a lot and kind of eventually realized that there was probably more money to be made hiring myself out as a videographer than um than as a hunting guide yeah and then that's yeah. kind of it kind of evolved into mediator taking you on and season one of duck Lord's done now season two when are we going to see that yeah. season two comes out on july 19th Ooh. so that's quite the day for uh, first light and meat eater, isn't it? It sure is. It's a big yes, day. It is. Yeah. Yes, it is. So, yeah. Any guests that you can tell us about for season two? Oh yeah, I'll, we can we can talk about it. Um, people hope people watch them because you know because I talk about them. So, um, well, the first episode is uh, on the Great Salt Lake, which is just one of the gnarliest craziest environments to hunt ducks man it's it's so cool but it's so wild um and we get walloped by quite the cold front during that i mean it takes a lot for that lake lake to freeze as hard as it did on us um but it froze pretty good and we still made it work but Golly. Yeah, you're not dealing with brackish water there. That's not brackish ice. That is salty ice. Like it's got to be Dude. cold, cold. Yeah, it's like super salty. Not, not to like uh, spoiler alert, but we had the one morning show up to where we wanted to hunt, and there is thousands, thousands of dead shovelers and teal, like frozen the ice. Oh no way. Yeah, which I'd never seen that. And now, not to get real far into the weeds, but now I can't help but wonder if it wasn't like a mix of the cold and the avian influenza outbreaks starting. 
I was just about to ask, like, were they kind of weak from the avian influenza? That's crazy. But the thing is, is like Glade, the, the get, or, you know, Glade is the guy I was hunting with on that episode, friend of mine from Salt Lake, uh, Glade Harris. He was there two days before and had not seen a single dead bird anywhere, like no sign of sick birds or anything like that. So I still kind of think it was the cold, but man, to see, oh, and the eagles were having a heyday. Golly, dude, they were just everywhere. That's like a, that, that's like Christmas morning, you know, for a bald eagle. Yeah. All of a sudden you wake up the next morning and there's like 2,000 shovelers just frozen place, can't go anywhere. It, have you ever had a bald eagle attack your decoys? I have one time. Yeah, I've also had a osprey try. We had a bald eagle do it one day. He hit the decoys first and then he came back later and tried for a cormorant. We were hoping he would, but he missed. The cormorant seen him in the last second drop in the water. <laughs> yes, should have saved some perch lives. Too bad that eagle didn't get him. What do those uh, What do those birds react like? Those birds of prey react when they hit a decoy. Is it like when a a buck in rut hits a hits a decoy? He goes to charge him and realizes that it's a lawn ornament and freaks out. Or are they a little bit like are they super confused or do they just try to carry it off? Depends no. if they they like get it gripped good if they get it gripped good they try to carry it off but if they can't grip it they wonder what the heck's wrong with it Jeez. at least that's my experience with the two encounters i've had no, I just, all you could hear was the claws hitting plastic and then that was it he left it and went off see we had it once where there was a big open like the lake was frozen pretty much solid and there's like one big patch that was empty and you you just basically sat on the ice shelf and the birds would come in and you shoot them. Well, if the bird landed in the water and you didn't get the dog or kayak out to it quick enough, the Eagles would be taking it from you. And it's like, shit, does that count as my limit? Like, is that the bird's <laughs> limit? What, how does this work? Right. Like, Ooh, yeah. Right. Touchy. So it, I never shoot limits, so it doesn't matter, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So oh, that's good. It, it makes two of us. <laughs> that's an interesting that is an interesting point though it's it's a lot like uh, fishing saltwater with sharks around right like you've got one on the line it's almost to the boat and then right before it gets in the boat you just get taxed um and uh, you know that's it's interesting to, to think about um but i mean i also think that you know while it's a gray area legally you know we all got to make our own choice of you know how, how we feel in that moment because i mean it's the same with you know a winged bird that you don't recover right like you just you got to make that call on your own you know what are the bird populations around like how do you feel about it what kind of a bird was it you know it there's a bunch of things that come into play there and um but interesting to think of because i mean that's nature that's a little different than you know you not being able to recover a bird that you shot that is straight up nature mother nature coming in and being like nope thank you i'll take that yeah. Yeah. well I, I look at it that i took the shot i took that bird i harvested it whether i got it or the bird got it that that's one of my limit right it's the yeah. same with like we were hunting once and the someone shot one and it was it crippled it and it was back in the cornfield and then when they went and looked, we couldn't find it, but we found like tracks of some animal. Well, did the, was it a coyote? Did a coyote get it? Well, it's still part of our limits. So let's pack up early. Right. Like that's, that's how we see it. 
Well, yeah, listen, I mean, there's a lot of ethical guys on this podcast right now. Okay. Like I'm, I'm being serious when I say that me personally, if I watch a bird of prey come and snatch up a bird that I just got before I can run my waiter ass out to him, I feel pretty good that that's not my bird. Someone else has taken possession of that one. I'm pretty sure. Okay. But I'd like to think that that Eagle wouldn't have got that duck without my help. Mm, fair point. I'll also say this. I look at the four of us here and it doesn't appear to me. Any of us are starving to death. So I probably don't need to shoot one more, but yeah touche <laughs> yeah. i've had uh hawks assist me twice on hunts and actually get me two birds so wow one really? time yeah one time we were goose hunting and we the first flock of the morning we could see like a dozen geese come over our back right shoulder and they were flying flying really weird and in amongst the geese i was like is that, is that a duck flying with the geese and as we're watching, it's like it's zipping and going like this through the geese. And we're like, hold on a minute, that's a hawk. And so the geese were flying the most erratic path for a flock of geese I ever seen. They flew past us and then into the next field. And then up came a goose and came flying back towards us. And as it yep. flew towards us, the hawk was diving at it and it landed 15 feet to my right. And he thought, he's like in the middle of the decoys, he's like, oh, hey guys, <laughs> that was pretty cool, hey? <laughs> <laughs> He was 15 feet away from me. See, there's all kinds of stories like this that people who don't hunt and don't do the outdoors just don't understand that shit, right? Like, mm -hmm. and it's it's mother nature and it it's a beast at times, but at other times it's like it's pretty amazing to watch some of this stuff, right? So yeah. But uh, I don't know. I personally, me, if I was hunting on season two, I'd probably think logan would be or watching season two i'd probably think that logan would be a great guest uh that ever happen uh huh no. yeah yeah it did uh yep logan's in there so uh kevin harlander from first light is in season two logan's in logan's in season two kimmy werner which maybe some people would know by kimmy swimmy on instagram she's a spear fisher woman um yeah. clay Clay Newcomb from Meat Eater, Anne-Marie DeRamis from Arkansas Game and Fish, um, Kevin Gillespie from Meat Eater, and uh, Mikhail Goins, a great hunting buddy of mine, and uh, Josh Wright from Wyoming. That's kind of season two's lineup of people. But yeah, Logan's in there, and we went to Missouri. Nice. And what about- That was an awesome experience. I never, never hunted Missouri before. Um... And honestly, I mean, Sean taught me so much uh, about Missouri, uh, including uh, what kind of awesome public land opportunities they have down there and what programs they have to really bolster that habitat um, and keep it really good for, you know, not just ducks, but deer or whatever else. I think it's kind of a sleeper state for all sorts of hunting and not just hunting. I mean, you should have seen some of the crappie boats we saw at the boat launches. I mean, these things, these were yeah. like $60,000 crappie boat rigs, like all set up. And so, I mean, honestly, it was, it was very, very cool. Uh, in my head, you know, Missouri is, um, has been a land of big bucks. And then, you know, without having been there and experienced it myself, I really didn't have much of a, a concept of what it was like down there, but it's kind of a, a sportsman's paradise down there. Uh, no matter whether you want, you know, there's plenty of opportunity to get on the water and then whether you like to, to chase game in the air or on, on the ground, um, you know, there's obviously a ton of opportunity for that as well. 
you know, here's a here's a gauge of um, how good Missouri is, is you don't see their license plate in every other state hunting, right? <laughs> they stick around home and they hunt hard, man. Uh, the hardest hunting fools I know, a lot of them are from Missouri. And, um, you know, I don't know where it sits nowadays, but a few years back anyway, Missouri was the number two state for mallard harvest um you know it, it slides pretty far for total duck harvest I, I i think it's still top 10 but you know you got california and louisiana arkansas texas you have so many ducks and so many duck hunters but as far as pure great mallard hunting like missouri is forced to be reckoned with and and part of that is that they have a dedicated percentage of their sales tax that goes to the Missouri Department of Conservation. And so they have what a lot of people call duck parks, where they have like, I think it's 43 of them. There's 40, it's 40 something, um, state owned and managed wildlife areas that are managed solely for duck hunting. So they've got flooded corn, moist soil units, millet, um, you know, all this prime habitat. And, and some of those places average over four ducks per hunter per day, which is, I mean, that's incredible hunting for public land. Wow. So if you want yeah. to go to hunt something like that, is that, is that kind of like a draw? Like, um, like if you go somewhere to hunt with a there's blinds I bet built already. Right. So you kind of got to get there early or. Yeah. yeah the, the, those, uh, those places are kind of a mix. Some of them, most of them are like, uh, not even a blind you actually sit in, but a blind area, like a stake out in the water. And like, you have to hunt within X distance of this spot. Um, and you draw every morning. I think it's a digital drawing system now. Um, and it's a little harder for non-residents to do you're like, you're not going to get drawn to go out there every day. Some of those are a little more walk-in, like first come, first serve, I think. But we weren't on any of that ground. But it just showed, like, it, it does produce, like, holding power for the state of Missouri, right? It, the yeah. state of Missouri draws and holds more birds because of those. Yeah. And just there's a culture of duck hunting there that kind of slides under the radar a little bit. Or is overshadowed by whitetail, which is completely fine if you're a duck hunter. Yeah. Let let the whitetail hunters come and do their thing, and uh, you know, leave yeah. the ducks for everyone else. Yeah, I, and I mean, it's it's not like Arkansas in the way that it has the same crowds and consistency, right? Like we we put in a lot of work for those birds, and there was a lot of people hunting those birds. Yeah, there's um, a lot. I mean, there's a lot of scouting. I've never that was something else hunting with Sean. Um, the amount of scouting we did i mean like western big game scouting both of us on onyx the entire time dropping pins like it it you know figuring out where property boundaries are and for me uh, growing up and hunting in michigan i mean we had like one or two holes that we would hunt um going to maryland it was like you know which which pit are we hunting in for geese today you know and, right. and there's only a couple options and it's largely all private land anyways and so uh, to go there and, you know, have, have those different opportunities, um, was, was really cool, but also 
you know, I don't think that I had ever, uh, at this point had not that I haven't hunted with, uh, you know, plenty of hardcore guys, but you know, one of the reasons that Sean is very good at his job, um, don't get a big head, Sean, but you know, is, is that he's willing to go the extra. It's pretty big. I know. I know. Trust me. I know what hat size you wear, but the, (laughs) uh, the, you know, just, just to see, um, you know, how far it can go and, and then to see the actual result, it it was honestly, I can equate it to, um, you know, very closely to how you'd prepare to go on a big game hunt and, you know, applying some of those strategies and, and scouting techniques into waterfowl. It was like very cool to see, you know, how effective they could be for us. Because, you know, as Sean said, like we, um, you know, we shot a couple of limits, but it was, I mean, they, they definitely weren't given to us and we had to deal with all sorts of crazy stuff, um, you know, to make it happen. But it was because we had all of that information in our head of, okay, here's plan A, here's plan B, here's plan C. And if they're, you know, if they're not flying here, or they're not there, like this is where we're going to go. And that's the same way that you Western big game hunt. Uh, and it, to be completely honest, even in my years of waterfowling, that is not, you know, approach I had, I had taken. Uh, so it was really, really cool just to, just to see how that worked and, and learn from Sean in that regard. Yeah. And that's, hopefully that's something that people can take when they actually watch these shows that Sean's putting on, like, there's something to learn every time when you see someone that that's passionate and experienced. Right. So that's, it's good to hear that. And that, that is the secret to a good waterfowl hunt is lots of scouting. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I just tried to be a sponge with Sean and it's really funny too, because the way that, uh, first time hunters in Missouri get their license, you actually have to go to a physical store and present your hunters, uh, certificate your hunter education certification so that you know you can you know they can give you you can't do it online well sean had hunted missouri before already had you know was in their system and so we're trying to buy my license the night before at the airbnb we got in super late and i actually had to um what do they call it i had to be like his apprentice hunter basically for the week and that joke did not get old for sean or our (laughs) camera guys just that i was his apprentice all week but in a much bigger sense you know after you know saying what i just did it uh it wasn't too far from the truth um which was which was pretty cool came out of that uh out of that trip with with a whole wealth of knowledge and i think getting to hunt a new place too that you know, we go back to talking about all the different opportunities Missouri has, especially in public land. Um, again, I never waterfowled in a place like that. So it was a perfect, uh, it was a perfect example of, you know, putting the techniques that Sean showed us, you know, to use, you know, you're not going to be able to put them to use like that everywhere. Uh, and, you know, Missouri just happened to be a perfect storm of, uh, both, habitat and you know everything was very well managed and you know we we caught some good days of weather um some good yeah, bad days of weather that. we 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 did hit the migration and the weather right i mean if we'd been there a week earlier it would have been pretty bad hunting honestly we so, we did time it right just what was right it, what was it like having logan as an apprentice though <laughs> <laughs> did you ever were you ever like in a field and you turned around Showing to see him. logan yelling like sean and he's like boots deep in the <laughs> yeah, mud I, was, I pulled him i pulled him out of the mud like he was a nine-year-old from iowa i showed him how to load his shotgun yeah. i mean uh, it, i could call it one or grasshopper <laughs> yeah thank goodness i had sean weaver with me wouldn't have shot a duck that's good so I really want to transition because we talked about July 19th and we'll get into that in a little bit, but um, it kind of, it's kind of interesting that first lights putting out all this gear 
and you can buy it starting July 19th, right? But mm-hmm. did the shows happen simply because of the gear or how did that all kind of evolve? Because it's been the greatest advertisement. People on the, like, if you go on the online forums, you go to like the first light pages on Facebook and it's like, oh, the new episode of Duck Lore's out. And look, I see the backpack and I see this and I see that. And people are picking, like they're picking out frame by frame, like, yeah, um, I think there's an episode where someone's like walking through a foot of mud or a foot of water and it's, I'm pretty sure it was just a set of Sikh pants, but they were like, I'm pretty sure that's the new this or the, you know, mm. it, so it's kind of, it's been the best advertisement for gear. Is that kind of the purpose of it or? So um, I, I didn't completely finish my story really oh. how I ended up getting into Meat Eater right yeah. earlier. Like I didn't explain it all the way. And that kind of brings some context to this. So um, I met Steve on a uh, like a wild game food event in Oregon in like 2018. And I was the photographer for it. And afterwards, put the camera down and him and I started just BSing. I was having some beers. We started talking duck hunting and we we clicked. We enjoyed talking duck hunting. And uh, I invited him to come hunt in South Dakota. And the next year he came and hunted in South Dakota with me. We filmed an episode of Meat Eaters Netflix show, duck hunting there. And uh, after that, Steve said, you know, we've kind of ignored doing waterfowl content for a long time, but we want to do it. You know, would you want to do something for us? Put, put together some ideas for us and, and tell us what you want to do. And honestly, all the way till, you know, last spring, when we started planning duck lore, up till that point, we didn't really know what the waterfowl content was going to look like, who was going to, um, like, I knew I was going to produce it, but what the show would actually take form as was kind of still left up in the air. But this is the one show I was really passionate about wanting to do was do a DIY duck hunting show that dives more into the the history, dives more into understanding the birds, dives more into understanding the locations, and really show what every duck hunter goes through that most duck hunting shows have ignored for too long. Um, and that's coming from someone that produced duck hunting TV for five years and and was maybe not producing a duck lore type show, right? Um, and so, yeah, that, but then, you know, honestly going into season, then it was like, well, uh, by the way, like we really want you to, you know, test this first light waterfowl gear hard, like put it through the ringer and, and it kind of just panned out that duck lore ended up perfectly coinciding with first light waterfowl really i mean it it was a natural evolution for four years for me to end up at meat eater and i'm sure it was a little bit more strategic than sean and i will ever know um do i think it's a coincidence that sean and i started within mere months of each other no i don't (laughs) i think that there was probably some wheels in motion beforehand but um you know dave as you kind of touched on earlier not a bad business model eh? uh you know when you can get uh, someone like Sean talking about the gear in the field with the gear, putting, you know, putting it through the paces, 
Um, but then also to have an audience see that, you know, if from a product development standpoint, it's very important that we tell that wear test story and we get the validation from the people who are using it the hardest. And, you know, Sean is definitely someone who um, is not only in the field, every, every opportunity that he can be, but um, he just beats the hell out of his shit. So I know that if, 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 if it's going to work for Sean, if it's going to last Sean a, a season, um, you know, I honestly go into expectations with some of our most hardcore uh, wear testers, like, God, God bless, let, let it get it through this season with this gear. Um, and Sean's still wearing stuff, you know, from, from two years ago. So, you know, some of the first stuff we wore. So it's, that's very good validation for us. But I also know that, um, you know, if Sean breaks something that it, you know, it, we're going to have to, we're going to have to fix it. And also Sean's a good sounding board too. God, Sean, your head's going to be so big after this podcast. Well, I didn't know I was going to be hyping gonna, you up this much. I was going to say that I'm ruthless on your shit. Like I tell you what I like and don't like, I don't hold back on that. I, I do tell you when I think something's wrong. Oh, sure. And I think that it also makes Sean and I a really good team too, because um, I don't know, you, you think we are the furthest thing from your, your standard um, corporate structure and lifestyle, you know, at, at meat eater. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, this is a business and, you know, moving forward, we need validation, we need support for ideas. And so, you know, Sean and I, it's really important for us to be collaborative on, you know, especially on the product side, you know, for me, just because uh, I know that if, if something's working for Sean, and Sean really likes it, that um, even if that isn't the opinion of the masses at the time, like I feel comfortable that we can educate that customer and this is the better way to do it. And that kind of keeps us thinking forward too of, of better ways to do things all the time. Um, and, and some of the best ideas, I mean, that, that Sean and I have had for product or the evolution of product has just been sitting in that blind in Missouri or, you know, multiple blinds mm -hmm. or driving around in the truck. I mean, that's where you're going to, that's where you're going to identify problems or, but more importantly, identify, you know, ways to do things better. You know, Dave, same, same thing when we were up snow goose hunting with you this spring, um, it was just, it was really good to get the stuff in the, in the field. And as, as we look towards the next evolution of that product and, you know, the stuff that we talked about in that blind that I can't necessarily talk about on the podcast now, uh, it's just, it's influencing it, uh, in such a positive direction. Um, and that's the one thing that, you know, we definitely don't take, uh, take for granted in our jobs and in this industry is being able to get in the field with people, but that's why it is so important. You know, some, some people think like, Oh, you know, you guys are just hunting. It's like, yeah, but it's like really, really important that we do this stuff. And it's really important that, you know, we're able to spend the time together and, you know, not just an afternoon hunt, not just one morning hunt, you know, one time a year, it's like, let's go to Missouri for five days and just pound this stuff uh, and, and see what we can come up with. And so not only did it create great content for uh, Sean's duck lore season, um, it also helped, you know, influence uh, and keep the ball rolling for the next seasons for us in first light waterfowl and how we can evolve and keep making those products better. And, and it's very evident, like, I don't know how much Sean actually put into some of the stuff I'm about to say, but like, it's very evident that you had duck hunters reviewing the gear. Like when you sent all the stuff up for us to hunt and test, um, Damien, it, it all went to Damien's house and, and I'm six hours away from him. So I'm like, we did a conference call and he's just like, look at this and look at this. And I'm like, well, did they think of this? Did they think of the, a little clip for the, for your mud mortar, for the emergency mm -hmm. switch. Right. Did they think of this? Did they think of that? And we're going through everything. It's like, holy shit like they must have it, this isn't like a matter of a 
a deer hunter like oh well this would make a good duck jacket this is actually like you had input from duck hunters and various disciplines like i kayak duck hunt and a lot of the stuff will fit for what i'm doing damien has a mud motor on a boat it'll fit for him phil does a lot of uh, panel blinds and layout blinds and it, the stuff worked for him so we all had differing opinions but it fit oh, all philly. of us philly philly what yeah. a guy <laughs> he certainly has a lot of opinions i miss him god bless him he's <laughs> he's another one that's not afraid to uh to to hit me up on a random wednesday night with a, a bunch of product ideas which is honestly so awesome and you know you're gonna hear me in in some of the promo videos say over and over again one of the crucial parts of wear testing and product development is just making sure that you know sean and i just didn't test that gear in missouri it got tested in the chesapeake it got tested in the pacific northwest it got tested in new mexico like it it's it's made its way around um and that's ontario so canada ontario canada there you go i tell you what all those snow geese we shot it was a great a real guy. testament real testament to the gear it, it would have fit in on uh on uh duck lore season one that's for sure i'll tell you what it's not <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That is funny. Duck lore <laughs> season two is a little different than duck lore season one. <laughs> duck lore season one, you got to be a masochist to enjoy that type of hunting. Um, but just to just to bring it back, like there's um all feedback is good feedback, right? And everyone, you know, you brought it up, Dave. You just said it. everyone chases ducks in their own in their own waters a little bit differently. Some are in kayaks, some are in boats, some are you know boats to dry land, uh, panel blinds, pit blinds. Um, you know, you go into the Carolinas and some of those. Uh, I'm sure there's a different word for it, but it's like a sink blind, right, Sean? You know, and that, that's super old school. But again, everyone's waters are a little bit different in how they get after. I mean, we look at some of the local water here in Idaho, and it is just skinny little backwaters that you got to paddle into. Um, you know, and but even still, Dave, like I'm doing the same thing you are, but it's a, it's a little bit different. The gear's a little bit different. The needs are a little bit different, and that's why it's so important that we we get the gear in, in your hands and, you know, it's a bit, you know, it's even more important that we get around and get to travel with you guys and hunt with you guys, because, you know, it's one thing to talk about it over text. It's another to come to some of these realizations together when we're sitting in the blind. And oh, go ahead. well, and I was gonna, I don't even remember what I was going to say. I got distracted. Go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say a like a million miles a minute. I bug Logan all the time. Sometimes it takes him two or three days to get back to me. Sometimes it's like two or three minutes. He's just going to put that out on the internet. All no, right, no, 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 no. Because you're busy, right? But the one thing that I've noticed is I'll, if I see something that's being like criticism, I'll be like, hey, Logie, like, man, people are saying this or, or this shit's going on. Or, or there was a guy doing like memes, right? And I was like, hey, Logan, just so you know. And, and I try to keep him up to date on some of the stuff that we're seeing. And it's never amount of like, they're, it's not like criticism doesn't get taken harshly. They kind of look at it like, you know, oh, we've got that and we're thinking of that already or whatever. So that's one thing that I enjoy about sending you messages there, Logan, is that you kind of take that criticism as feedback just to put into what you were saying. Like it, it helps you with development. And I know Sean's wanting yeah. to say, I could see it in his face. He wants to say something right now about him. <laughs> oh man. Well, I, I was just thinking about how, I mean, I don't know how many hours I've spent like <laughs> texting, slacking, calling Logan, being especially on all my drives last year. It's like, hey, da, 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 what do you think about, you know, 
this product to fit in this, you know, in this well, gap. Truck, in the truck drives are where the best ideas come from. Oh, so yeah. Anytime I know you're driving, I'm like, oh, he's got something good. Well, yeah, because it's when I all of a sudden hit up everybody I haven't talked to in five days, right? Like I go radio silent for five days while we're filming, except in Missouri when it seemed like everyone from work thought that was the time to call me. But <laughs> we had also just that- launched, you and I were on, you and I were, I mean, we were on that shoot and we launched, well, I mean, we basically did the soft launch of the line, the, the big reveal we too. the so. line while we were sitting out there, yeah. Yeah, while we were sitting on the blind, 9 a.m. prime time, and Sean and I's phones are blowing up. Um, what, what was I going to say? Oh, um, you know, one thing I'm real, like, super pumped about for waterfowlers is now there's a direct line for them to be exposed to first light base layers. Like, waterfowl, I, I mean, that was really, for me, the kind of awakening of coming like when I came to first light wearing first light was like man I've been missing out for a long time on things like the furnace like oh dude the first light base layers are just they're just kick ass and you know a lot of waterfowlers frankly like have never had exposure to first light they haven't had exposure to those base layer systems. Now, all of a sudden, there's a reason to get them interested in them. And I think a lot of waterfowlers are going to be like, okay, I've been really missing out for a long time here. Well, Sean, you just nailed you just nailed it right on the head. I mean, that from what I know, um, you know, pre-hire uh, is that, that that foundation, they're like, listen, we've got half of it. Like, we've got a really good foundation for waterfowlers. The waterfowlers are already using our merino wool. They're already using our soft shell. You know, um, so we've got half of the equation already put together. Now let's give them a camo pattern and, you know, the rest of the dedicated outerwear that they need to get the job done. But wool, merino wool is really our first handshake with with waterfowlers, um, you know. Right, it, and it was just that it was Western waterfowlers that were aware of it right sure. like if we're calling a spade a spade guys in oh, South yeah. Dakota and Missouri and Arkansas just you know weren't aware totally like, now they will be totally and not and not and not just there too I mean we think of first light distribution um you know we started as a western hunting mountain bread um and, and we're moving our way east uh just in and now um that we have you know, as you move your way east, you move into whitetail, you know, quite immediately. Uh, and, you know, obviously our whitetail business is, is really booming right now and continuing to grow. And that's, a, that's an awesome handshake with those regions. Um, but then as you get even further east from north all the way up into BFE, Ontario and the land of butter tarts down to, you know, southern Louisiana, um, you know, th- like waterfowl is, is kind of the name of the game as, as you start to hit the east coast. And so, you know, Sean, as Sean kind of alluded to, we're, we're working that way. And, you know, with, especially with the help of, you know, a, a platform like Ducklore uh, to show the product from coast to coast, like it's such an awesome um, exposure for us. And Dave, just kind of bring this full circle to what you said, you know, it, it's a great business model. So, you know, Sean and I work together uh, on, you know, on product ideation and, and, you know, evolving that product and what new products do we need to, to bring to market? Where do we need to test them? Um, and the, and the guys in those regions that we want to get signed off, like it's, 
you know, it's the buck doesn't just stop with Sean and I are the guys in our office too. I mean, the, the network of people that we know, and that especially that Sean is, um, is in with and has met through his, in his entire career in waterfowl. Um, you know, those are our, our biggest names. You guys, for example, you know, in Punisher waterfowl, like just great assets for us. And, and that's why it's, you know, it's so important, like I said, and I'm going to continue to say it just to get it in the field and in the different flyways and, and chase ducks, and geese, you know, any way, um, you know, that they're doing it locally. So we can make sure that our gear is, is up to the test. Yeah. And going back to what you're saying about Merino, Merino is one of those things that I do a lot of kayak duck hunting. And whenever new guys reach out to me and they're like, Hey, what, you know, what do I need? And I'm like, man, get yourself some Merino. Like you tip that yeah. kayak, you're going to be soaking wet. You get back in that kayak with anything else like synthetics and stuff. You're going to get cold real quick. You're still going to get cold, but it's going to retain a lot of that heat because I forget the number on it, but like 80% or something. Yeah. Like yeah, eight, 80%, 80%. And obviously there's, you know, there's some other factors like, uh, like wind, for example, that's, yep. that's going to play a role in that. But, you know, synthetics and Merino are, when you think about the waterfall use case is, it generally, it's just a little bit different. Like the, the advantage that synthetics have, you know, over Merino wool is quick drying. Um, but like how quick is quick. If your hunt is four hours long, I can, you're still going to be kind of soggy, even in your synthetic base layer. Right. But you're not going to be as warm as you are in, in your Merino. Right. So if, if your name of the game, you know, you, you went in, you got dunked and the name of the game now is all right, well, I'm here for the hunt. I'm here for the next four hours. Uh, am I going to be warm or, you know, am I going to be like kind of dry, um, you know, and, and the entire time the synthetic is taking too dry, um, you know, it's actually going to actively cool you down as well. So give and take, but again, it just to, to hammer on what you said, Dave, it, you know, it Merino wool was a perfect fit for waterfowl, gave us a, a great platform to launch off of. And honestly, it was something that, um, the guys that were in the know of, of first light and first light Marina were, were already wearing. So it, it gave us kind of a, a good, a good springboard into the waterfowl space for sure. Yeah. I never thought I would own an, a wool t-shirt, but this Dude, here, no kidding. No kidding. Is my favorite shirt ever. I gotta Marino say tech tees are very, black, very good. So yeah. If it's, if it's getting pretty hot here, I might not wear it outside, but it's actually I'm, it's gonna make me order these in different colors so that I can wear them when it's mm -hmm. when it's like 30 degrees out because I love this yep. shirt. <laughs> yeah, and it's honestly it's the best it's the best base uh, a the super lightweight wool. A lot of guys in our office, um, Sean included, like if you can start with that t-shirt, the super lightweight, and then layer more like layer a, a furnace on top of it. That's the way to go because that super thin layer uh, next to your skin is going to control your body's microclimate in both cooling and heating. And then you put something like that's very thermal on top of it, like a heavyweight furnace, and it's mm. going to keep you warm. But like, as you, you know, in those active moments, that super thin layer of wool is actually going to, you know, react to your body's activity level to keep you not cool or warm, but to manage you right at that perfect level um, and work in conjunction with your other, you know, your other base layers. So yeah. that was actually a very good segue into talking more about Merino. <laughs> well, I, well, I, I was just quickly, don't forget that they actually have that same black one with different like patterns on the front. You can get the topography one and all that stuff because 
I grabbed all the same ones so that people wouldn't look at me like you're wearing the same shirt every single day of the week. What the hell's wrong with you? Right. So, yeah. <laughs> hey, and we can, we can say it now, but uh, we're dirty duck hunters. We're allowed to do that <laughs> next week. There's well, that's the best part. I would say the arguably the best part about Merino wool and man, I thought you'd really only appreciate it in the back country, but being in a duck camp for five days, you can get ripe and uh, the Merino doesn't stink. It just doesn't. You know um, what, man, getting a motorcycle accident where it's hard to get shirts on and off. And a Merino shirt, like what he's wearing is golden. Like you put that on, you know, wife doesn't complain so much. <laughs> You're good for days. You're good for days. <laughs> I've had this on for three days. Yeah. Sorry, Sean, you were going to say something. It doesn't stink. <laughs> uh, I was just going to say, I had actually got a message from a guy today uh, asking, you know, what, like, he's like, I'm really on a budget, but I want some of the new first light stuff. Um, like what are the absolute core pieces you got to have? And I was like, man, you got to start off like getting yourself into some of the first light wool. And I was like a, a wick hoodie, a furnace QZ, uh, origin hoodie, Brookstown vest and an LZ jacket that, that setup right there can cover you through so much of the season, just cause the variability of it all and the ability to control that like Nexus skin. I was, you know, he was from Minnesota, hunts a lot early season. Um, I was like, man, you'll be able to wear that wick hoodie when you're swatting mosquitoes and loving it. And you'll still be wearing that wick hoodie at the end of the season as your next totally. skin. Totally. And that furnace you can wear as your top layer. Like I find myself mm -hmm. all through October pretty much wearing the furnace as my top layer, right? Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. And that's something that's important to remember in, as we launch this, this new category and these new systems of dress, um, like our base layer is our base layer. It's our foundation it has been first lights foundation and base layer, like the, the nomenclature, that's the, it's literally the base of everyone's hunting kit. Like that's very familiar, uh, to customers. And then the next level, uh, comes what we're calling transitional outerwear. And that's something I'm going to say a gazillion times and that we're going to beat customers over the head with. And transitional outerwear are uh, items that are early and mid-season outerwear that as the season gets cold and the weather gets super nasty, become great mid-layers. And so you look at our catalyst pieces, our catalyst system that has, you know, top performers, fan favorites of first light, uh, great for underweighters and, and under, you know, your, your rain jackets and your waterproof outerwear, because it just, it controls that microclimate so well, it's a breathable soft shell. Um, so, you know, you look at some of our foundational hunt pieces, you look at our foundation in base layer and honestly, we had 80%, we had, you know, 60%, we had everything that waterfowlers needed except a camo pattern and like four or five really key pieces. And now we've got them. Uh, and so it really, it's important um, to tell that full system story because it all works together. It's all fit together. There's features that line up with each other, like kit link on the outside. Um, so the, it, it goes to show you, you know, for, for guys that have been wearing first light for a while, it now the pieces that, you know, 80% of our customers already have in their closet, uh, we fit it underneath and this is how it works you know with the the waterfall outerwear and for the the brand new guys it's, it's just a little bit of an education process going forward of like hey 
start with base layer. And then you start with the things that you're going to wear in the truck in the morning. And then now we have, you know, the highly technical waterproof outerwear that, you know, you're going to wear in the blind when you're, when you're actively hunting. Now talk more about that Typha, because to me, like I always hunted with the cipher, right? Um, Mm -hmm. That was kind of like, it fit more the region that I was hunting. Cipher was just the brown and the beige. And to me, like a company could have just thrown that cipher on the new LZ jacket and said, this is our waterfowl line. And that would have been, I think people would have accepted it, but you guys put in a ton of time and effort and a lot of testing, because like, if you watch that type of video and you see Kevin Harlander and the, the drone zooms out from him and then he's talking about like, yeah, we just need to darken up the base color and like talk more about Typha. Either one of you. How, how much, how much time we got? I talk about Typha until the cows come home. But, I could uh, talk to you guys for hours. Let's go. <laughs> it was just, it was, it was really good. You're absolutely right though. It took, uh, you know, arguably even more time. We actually looked the other day, just, we were, we were curious to try and figure out exactly how long we've been working on the waterfall product leading up to the launch. And, um, it was, uh, February of 2020 that I handed over the brief to our designer, um, for, for the camo pattern. Um, and it, it was, it was, it was 12, I'm sorry, seven rounds of design and 12 different, uh, color variations after which that we, that we had to really hone in on, um, and to get the thing right. And it's, you know, it's with, with birds, specifically ducks, like color is so, so important. Um, uh, if you want to learn more about duck vision, please head over to the meateater.com and read Sean's article on the truth the about, truth duck, about vision. duck vision. <laughs> Great article. It was an awesome article. Actually, I, uh, used, uh, basically the cliff notes of his entire article for another podcast I did recently, but Tons of good information. If you didn't know already, Sean knows a little bit about ducks. You learn a lot about duck vision through there, but you'll learn that, you know, they, they see how they see, you learn a little bit more about how they see and, and why it was so important for us to focus um, on, on color so much on color and, you know, color actually plays a direct role in the depth perception uh, and, and why that was so important in the in the development of this camo pattern, but yeah, we, we forever, we took in, uh, God bless him. You know, luckily I, I tell you, you know, Sean's one of my biggest validators of our product. And, um, you know, I think the first time that Sean and I met each other, uh, and we were talking, he, he said to me, and this is honestly what, what was in my head when going into it, he just said, um, you know, the problem with waterfall patterns is that they're all too dark these days. Uh, yep. you know, so we, yeah, I was, I was so happy to hear that because honestly, that was my, um, that was my whole soapbox going into development of this is that, um, when you, you know, you look at cipher, um, and it is dark, it has a, what we call a dark ground where you're seeing, you know, more of the darkest color in the pattern than you are in the lightest color of the pattern. And what we did is, uh, what that does is it creates a lot of contrast, which is very good for macro breakup of your silhouette. Um, but when viewed at from a super long distance, which ungulates, you know, deer and elk, like how they see, they're not going to see you from that far away. Like your breakup doesn't, doesn't really matter at that, but what you look like in a darker camo from a long ways away is a dark blob. You do, you turn into a dark blob. And so it was constantly trying to solve for the, you know, the, the dark blob problem. Um, and so again, developing this camo pattern, 
you're not just, these guys are, you have their eyes on you from a long ways away and the way that their eyes work, they can focus on things that are up close and far away at the same time. Um, so you better be damn sure that your camo is just as visually disruptive at a hundred yards, you know, as it is in tw at 20 yards as the, you know, as those birds are doing their thing overhead. So, um, it was, it was a long process to get the, the color palette dialed in, but you know, now that it's, um, now that's launched, feel super stoked about it. We even made it on a couple of the meme pages this morning. They were hating on it, but it, honestly, in my opinion, I was laying in bed this morning, just cracking up, laughing at some of the meme pages that were making fun of it because what they were making fun of was actually kind of exactly what we were going for. Um, and so I, I just, I feel super confident that we know it works exceedingly well, so much better than, you know, anything else in the market, because we didn't just go at this in one go, like, Hey, what do you like? What do you like? I mean, we took a full scale evaluation of every camo, not just in the market today, but going back to OG frogman camo from the Marines, like we, what was good about this? Cause frogman camo turned into OG duck camo, you know, and, and you look at that and there was actually a lot of the philosophies of the breakup philosophies that you see um, executed in Typha. You can see in, in some early camo patterns very early on um, that, that have been deemed effective. And even, you know, I, I would go as out as far on a limb to say that Typha is, is much more effective than old school duck camo. But I would tell you that, you know, duck camo, uh, still has such a place in the market, um, not only just because it looks cool casually, but because there are some real breakup elements to it that make a lot of sense. So when we started the design process, we, we honestly, we looked at old school duck camo here, here are the things that it does really well, actually, um, and has been doing well since the forties. And, you know, how can we bring that into the 21st century and how can we, um, you know, how can we improve upon that with some of the things that we know about how, uh, about how ducks see. So we, we really just went, went from there and it was a, just a ton of development. Um, I think the obsession, we obsess more over the camo pattern than, than anything else to be completely honest with you, but it is most important. It goes on every single one of our products and, you know, camo just has to work. I mean, we talk about the evolution of solids and hunting and especially in Western big game, you can get away. I mean, I killed elk with a bow at 12 yards and I didn't have on camo pants, but guess what? He had, he had no idea. You know, you're not going to get away with that, you know, with a duck, uh, it, standing out in the middle of the open, right? Like they're, they're going to pick you apart, um, immediately. So it, it was really important. And, and honestly, one of the, the highest priorities on our list to nail, um, right out of the gate. So, you know, we've got this tight collection of, of super technical duck dedicated and duck designed outerwear. Um, but then to go with it, you know, we're putting, we're putting uh, our pattern on everything, you know, and that, that's going to tell you that it's made for duck hunting. Anytime you see that type of pattern, you're going to know that, you know, that this piece is meant to be in the field and it's meant to kill ducks in. And it, it was, sorry, Sean, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, like, frankly, you know, people can talk about what camo looks like in a picture or, you know, on the internet all they want. But once you see Typha in a, cattail slough or a cornfield or a wheat field you're like oh it's exactly what you need like it just freaking looks right it doesn't blob from a distance which is my biggest pet peeve in camos and and logan will tell you like honestly when i first saw the typha and when we were at the hotel room <laughs> logan's like oh what do you think and i'm like i'm not it's not going to replace my cypher and I don't know why you didn't just put specter on it too. Like it, it didn't like the specters just kind of got the green in it. Like what, 
and then we went out and hunted for two days straight. And in those two days, we had rain, we had freezing rain, we had clouds, we had fog, we had overcast, we had sunny. It was like a huge mixed bag. And throughout that whole time, like we had guys standing over by the bush and we had guys standing kind of in the mud pit and we had guys standing like near the blinds. And then it kind of like, at one point, I think Brian and I, or maybe Phil and I looked at each other and we're like, holy shit, that stuff works. Like, well, it, Dave, it just, you and I were laying on the ground actually yeah. um, outside of the blind and someone took a picture of us and it was really, I think that was your selling point. That was your turning point. Cause you yeah. saw, I mean, we weren't in a blind, we were just laying in the middle of a pick, a pick bean field or, you know, uh, I think it might've been a wheat field, but still like it, we were just laying out there. And I think that's a yeah. trust that test of a, a true waterfowl camo. And, you know, Sean has said forever how, and he's right, how important it is um, that you use natural cover, you know, in, in your blinds uh, just because, you know, some of the things uh, natural elements we can't recreate just with the UV spectrum that, that ducks see. And it's very important for you to have natural Correct. cover around you, but still laying out in the middle of a cut wheat field. We, I mean, we could have yeah. disappeared. Like we would have had, we would have had birds landing on top of us. And so I think that was your selling point. Um, but initially yeah. you weren't sold. No. And so like, that was cool for me to see you come full circle. On it. Yeah. Like I, I just wanted to point that out because I'm not with, you know, you're with first light, you're with meat eater. I'm not with those two. I'm just a dude talking. And when I saw mm -hmm. it, yeah. When we're laying there, I think I even made the comment, like after I woke up and saw the picture, I think I said to Logan, I'm like, fuck man, we should just get rid of the blind and just lay in the, geese like just lay in the decoys like <laughs> i could have my nap and no one field. would know like we only had one goose come in anyway so <laughs> yeah i yeah it was great so listen i told sean and and logan that i'd only keep him for an hour i'd like to have him here for like three but um it's been an hour um but i didn't get to know like other than the base layers what are you looking forward to most in this uh in this launch boys sean why don't you go ahead because you know i'm excited for all of it yeah, really, the the piece um, that I was most skeptical about going into season and then ended up being most excited about is the refuge bib. Because, it, granted, it's a very specific use case, right? You're not going to wear them in September hunting early season honkers. You're, you're, you don't need the refuge bib. On, there it is, Mark. Unless you hunt. Yeah, man, I love those thinking things that you don't need them unless you hunt late season or even mid season to late season field hunting, right? If you're a com completely a water hunter, they're probably not for you. But if you are a ever in the need of bibs and it's cold, like they're the best. I, I told Logan this before. I was an uninsulated bib guy for a long time because I could layer under them and I could use them for everything, but you still get cold. <laughs> you just do <laughs> like, and then all of a sudden hunting in Wyoming when it was negative, whatever it was, negative 18, 18 negative. Yeah. Wind chill, like, um, dude, warm, like actually warm, not just I can survive, but actually enjoying the hunt being warm. And it's it's nice to have a good bib uh, and not to have yeah there's other i'll leave it at that <laughs> well also for um you know not that 
your entire audience is based around Ontario where you're from, but the, the hunting style of hunting we were doing, you guys do a ton of field hunting. Um, and that's really what the, the, you know, the refuge bib was designed to do. And there is an uninsulated, uh, pant that we have as well. The Omen storm shelter pant will be available in Typha coming up, which again, it's our, um, our most hardcore mountain hunting Alpine, um, waterproof pant. Uh, it, but at the same time, it has a huge application um, in early season duck and goose. If you're, if you're doing stuff in a field, it's a hundred percent waterproof, incredibly durable. I mean, it was built to withstand, you know, the shale rock and sliding down shale. Um, so it's definitely built tough enough for the field. So we do have two an uninsulated and an insulated uh, option there, but you know, the refuge bib, as Sean said, it is, it, it's meant to be the, um, the really the pinnacle of like this weather Dude, it's is the Cadillac, terrible. man. It is yeah. this weather is terrible and I have to stay warm. And you know, first light we're go farther, stay longer. And in the case of you know, waterfall, it's generally the the stay longer. Um, you're not gonna stay, you're not gonna stay long if you're cold. It's the same thing with whitetail, you're just not gonna do it. Um, so it was really important for us to really cap that end uh, of the market first and really prove ourselves as being, hey we're going to keep you dry. We're going to keep you warm. Like we guarantee it. Um, and so coming out with that, it was really awesome to see that evolution. It was actually, Sean and I haven't talked about this before. It's like very awesome to hear that, uh, he came around on the refuge bib. That's one of his favorite pieces. Uh, the other one is if you run a boat all the time, the grizzly trigger mitt. Yep. Because that thing for keeping your hands warm when you're running a boat is like cheating. It's yep. wonderful, especially with a, like a, just a Merino. Um, it's it's going to be a trigger mitt like that. Yeah. It's, it's the lobster claw. Yep. And it, it, it's got the clip around your wrist. So that when you take the glove off, it'll dangle. Um, I use oh, it a lot. Idiot, idiot strings. Yeah. Is that the one or is that the tundras? No, no, no. no you're right. You're right. Yeah. It's, yeah. I Those. mean, hey, some, sometimes you develop product in a ski town and you pick up some things on the hill. And uh, yeah. if you look at uh, ski gloves, that's a, that's a resounding um, common feature that you find. Those work until you do what I did, which is be cranking a boat. Uh, airboat up on a winch and cut those clean off in the gear of the winch. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I personally, I'm looking forward to that pack. That's going to be a game changer for the, uh, for the Philly kayak hunters. Like Philly's, Philly's really looking forward to that. <laughs> so photographers are going to love it because it's perfectly designed for it's waterproof. Like for, if you put it upside down, like it's designed, it's waterproof for like, what is it? Six inches and three inches. Yeah. So basically, you know, we, we call it a bathtub design. Yeah, bathtub. Um, and, and so, and it floats. So, it's, you know, I think, you know, Sean and I were actually in Arkansas hunting some timber after Missouri. Um, and we just had our blind bags, you know, it's in the timber in flooded timber. There's nowhere to set your shit down. And so, um, it was really awesome just to have, you know, our bags and honestly, water is moving a little bit. So we had to secure them, but just to have them floating next to you. And, um, as long as that zipper doesn't get submerged and i mean you have six inches of carry there you'd literally have to have weight lifting weights in there to, to push That's it down below that but it'll float it'll float next to you and you can leave it in up to six inches of water laying face down for a hundred years and, and it's not going to leak which um, is huge. and then yeah it is huge. and we don't have a submersible zipper on it only because 
for people who have worked with submersible zippers before, not only do they cost a lot and add a bunch of, of product costs, but um, they're just a pain in the ass to get in and out of. They're just, they're not easily workable. I mean, the, the tape that's required to, you know, make something completely watertight uh, in a zipper um, requires a lot of effort to get in and out of. And, you know, we wanted to make sure this blind bag was, was definitely easy to get in and out of because there isn't, you know, given that bathtub design, that RF welded bathtub design, there's no exterior pocketing on it. Um, and we do have exterior Molly platforms, which will have uh, different uh, FHF, our sister company um, makes awesome Molly based assess accessories. And we'll have pouches and bottle holders and shot shell holders and all the stuff coming from them that are, are kit to kit out your, um, to kit out your ground control pack a hundred percent. But, um, I'm really excited about the pack. It was honestly the coolest product, uh, I've ever had an opportunity to work with in, in my career. It, it really does everything. You know, Dave earlier, you, you mentioned, you know, thinking through, you know, all the details and in writing the copy for the bag, um, I quite confidently say that carefully considered features for every moment of the hunt. And, and from the time that you're packing stuff in, uh, you know, in, in your hot and you, you know, you want to put your waterproof or your insulated outerwear on top of the bag, you know, you've got your thermos, you know, also outside the bag on this, on this holder, but it's not necessarily a dedicated bottle holder. You could put shot shells there or a pouch or whatever else that you may need. Um, the way that, the way that it hangs the, you know, the modular strap systems, uh, the camera bag style design, you know, and how you can go modular with the different compartments inside it. It honestly, it adapts to any style of hunting, you know, and I, I mentioned earlier in the podcast guys, uh, they hunt just, it's a little bit different everywhere you go, you know, yeah. and that's why it's so important that we go everywhere. And that's why it was so important that, you know, making, we were just launching one pack. We weren't going to launch a pit, uh, a pit pack. We weren't going to, you know, launch a bunch of a pack suite. We just wanted one bag that was going to do it all. Um, and that's very tough to do because oftentimes what happens when you do that in product development, you end up, um, making a product that is, um, uh, not really good at doing any one thing good. You know, it's, it's, it's okay at doing a bunch of different things. And, of, uh, you know, in my career, I can wholeheartedly say that this pack does it all and it is awesome. It does it all awesome. So that's probably the piece that I'm most, most excited for as well, Sean. I, yeah, I, I think it, it was kind of neat that you were showing me the pack and Phil's cleaning his camera and then you got to open. And I said, what's this little bag thing for? And, and you said, Oh, that's for, uh, that's for the shells. That's like a little shell pouch. And Phil's like, Oh, my camera's going to fit perfectly in there. That's where my lens will go. And so it's kind of, I don't know. I'm, I can't wait to see what people end up doing with the pack and how they use it and utilize it. Me, myself, it's going to go between my legs in between the rails on my kayak and it'll flip open. And I have all my snacks there because I'm a big dude and I love my snacks. You know what I'm saying? So we know, remember, we don't need to shoot that extra bag. Yeah, see, that's just <laughs> it, right? I could, yeah. I also probably don't need like the parka to stay warm. That's how big I am. <laughs> so, anyway, guys, we're over the hour. I apologize for that, but it, it's been a great time. Um, Mark, any last words? No, well, good meeting you guys. Good uh, meeting you as well, Mark, for sure. I mean, I heard, heard about you, Logan, from the trip. I never got to go, but I heard every detail about oh, that trip. Great. Uh, and I did have a couple of, criticisms about a couple of items that are have been brought to me i just never had you as a contact so 
maybe after we start recording, I'll mention a couple of those things. You probably already addressed them, I bet. We'll, um, we'll put you and Philly in the same group group chat and you guys can hit me up every night with what I could be doing better. I appreciate <laughs> I do appreciate it though. Again, it's, it's none of it's personal. Like I, it's just, it is, you know, just to reiterate, it's so important that we get feedback from everyone and in every way that they hunt, because what one guy says in Maryland, um, this is the way, and this is the way it has to be is totally different from the most hardcore authentic guy that's doing it in Oregon and says, this is how it is. And this is how it needs to be. Right. Like we, we have to hear it all, or we're not going to make the best waterfall product in the market. So uh, Sean, good meeting you. Uh, it's nice to see you in person after watching you on the show. I watched the show as soon as it got released. I think you were watching, we were telling each other when we get released on our group chats, like, Oh, this episode's out now. Boom. Then a week later, another episode was We were all watching them and it was great to see it. And we really, uh, we really appreciate, appreciated your take, your realistic take on waterfowl hunting in that show. So nice. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. I had fun talking to you guys. Happy to meet you. We'll have to do, we should do an, another one of these sometime where we just like, just talk, I don't know, decoy strategy or like, you know, something super fun like that where everyone bounces ideas. About, you mean uh, where we're not just shamelessly promoting our own product and shows? <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know what, Sean, I think coming on right before duck season, we can get a list of stuff together. You should definitely come on. And you know what? You should come up to Ontario for a hunt with us, buddy. I think that'd be a bit of a yeah, that'd be you. fun. Yeah, you ever had great. ketchup chips, Sean? I have, because guess what? I have been to Ontario. Yeah. <laughs> Did you drink milk out of a bag? Because Logan oh, didn't believe Dave, it. Dave, don't. Let's not even <laughs> listen. This has been a great podcast. Let's wrap it up on a positive note. I, I don't want to start talking about bag milk right now. <laughs> I just wanted to mention that I thought it would have been great. I looked through the ad for the new bag, and I was trying to convince Logan to like, put you can put five bags of milks in there like that would, <laughs> that, bags that of milks. Be, that'd yeah. be good fun social media content yeah so i i will i'll have to make that picture for myself i guess but, mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. anyway guys appreciate you both coming on hey uh, appreciate yeah, you guys thanks. as always this, this was awesome and you know it feels so much less like a like a podcast and just catching up with buddies talking about our favorite stuff you know yeah so anyway thanks a lot damien our thoughts are with you and um Look forward to having you back and talking to you, buddy. So anyway, surround yourselves with good people and uh, we'll catch you next week.